it's a huge experiment and this is something that has never been done. We looked at all the genes in the genome to see what is actually going on during this fasting process. By tuning your timing and eating within eight to 10 hours, the number one thing that we found is nearly 80 plus percent of the genes were changing what time they were turned on or off or how high or low they're going up or down. So that means really by changing your eating time, you can be the master conductor of your own whole genetic program. Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. Around 10 years ago, this week's guest published a seminal paper on something called time-restricted feeding. And it's safe to say that this paper was hugely influential in kickstarting a global health phenomenon now widely known as intermittent fasting. Dr. Sachin Panda is a leading expert in the field of circadian rhythm research. He's associate professor at the prestigious Salk Institute. He's recipient of the Dana Foundation Award in Brain and Immune System Imaging. And he's also the author of two best-selling books, The Circadian Code and The Circadian Diabetes Code. Now, over the years, Sachin's work has had a significant influence on the way I practice medicine. And he first came on my show over four years ago now in June 2018. And I'm delighted to have him back for a second time so that he can update all of us on where we are with our understanding of this topic today. Now, research has shown that around 50% of us currently spread our meals and snacks across 15 or more hours of the day. But Sachin's research suggests that 10 hours may well be the optimum eating window for many of us. Having periods of time in every 24 hours where we are not eating is essential for repairing, resetting and rejuvenating all of our organs and tissues and releasing anti-inflammatory signaling molecules that strengthen our immune system. Now, during our conversation, we cover the numerous benefits that people can experience when they compress their eating window. Better sleep, improved digestion, more energy. Some studies have shown benefits for things like weight loss, improved gut health and kidney function, not to mention some incredible results with pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes, a topic brought to life in Sachin's latest book, The Circadian Diabetes Code. If you've listened to my show for a while, you will know that food, whilst very important, is not all that counts when it comes to optimizing our daily circadian rhythms. And Sachin covers some of the other simple lifestyle factors that are hugely important. He also shares some great advice on jet lag, shift work, social hangovers, and the optimum time for naps and exercise. Now, it's no exaggeration to say that Sachin's work has revolutionized our collective understanding of health and well-being. It really was a huge honor to speak to him again. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, two quick things that's really important for me to say before we get started. Number one, this podcast talks about restricting our eating windows in order to gain potential health benefits. This advice may not be suitable for anyone suffering with or recovering from an eating disorder. Please, please do take this into account if you are listening. And secondly, if you have an existing health condition or are taking medication, for example, for type 2 diabetes, 
always consult your healthcare practitioner before going for prolonged periods of time without eating. Now, before we get started, I want to quickly mention some of the new options to listen to this show that you may not be aware of. Sponsor reads are essential for this show to come out each week as it does. There are around seven people involved with the production and editing of each show. And of course, they all need paying. The sponsors help us to do this. However, I fully appreciate that many of you would rather listen to these episodes without any sponsor reads at all. That option is available to all of you, both on Apple Podcasts and on Supercast for people who are not on Apple. It's only $3.99 a month, which I think is incredible value. That's under £1 per week. It's super easy to get involved. All you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And to be really clear, the podcast will continue to be free of charge each week for everyone. This subscription option is simply for those of you who would like to support the show and listen to ad-free episodes. On the subject of sponsors, today's show is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Now, good quality nutrition is an essential pillar to get right for our physical, mental, and our emotional health. And in an ideal world, there's no question that I would prefer it if everyone got all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from 21 years now of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to find the time to consistently do that. That's why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotics, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. AG1 has been in my own life for over three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It's also really tasty. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. If you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you'll be able to access an exclusive special offer where they are offering my audience five free travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D, a critical nutrient for our immune system. You can see all details of this special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. And now, my conversation with Professor Sachin Panda. You know, I think a really good place to start this conversation would be to really help us all understand what happens in our body when we have a period of time when we're not eating. Yeah, so my uh, research background is uh, circadian rhythm or 24 hours rhythms, which means that our body is actually designed to be at its peak performance, whether it's metabolic, physical, biochemical, or uh, intellectual performance, peak performance at every hour of the 24 hours day. And we all evolved on this planet with uh, 24 hours light-dark cycle and eating-fasting cycle. So that's why we are designed to go through this at least 12 to 14 hours of fasting every day. So now coming back to what happens during this period of time, 
one thing is this fasting has to be consistent from one day to another, consistently at the same time, so that our body's internal program recognizes that fasting is going to occur. So there is a lot of preparation, internal preparation, the circadian rhythm does that preparation. So after your last bite of the dinner, for example, if it happens at six o'clock in the evening, then although your mouth finished chewing the food and swallowing, that food is going to be digested for the next five hours. So the first five hours of your overnight fasting, uh, your body is actually not fasting, it's digesting the food. And then after five hours, uh, approximately five hours, the food goes to intestine and then nutrient absorption happens for the next few hours. And during this time, the body is using most of the glucose and stored glycogen for fueling our system. And then slowly when it runs uh, low uh, on glycogen, so which happens maybe seven, eight hours or even 10 hours um, after our last meal, then it slowly begins to burn a little bit of fat. And when the fasting period aligns with your sleep, then there is another magic that happens that is um, our gut lining and many parts of our body actually gets a lot of damage throughout the day and they have to be repaired. And that repair process happens only when we are in our deep sleep and also we are fasting. Uh, we don't have too much food to digest. So after nine to 10 hours, this is when if you're asleep, then um, your pituitary gland will produce growth hormone that will travel to many parts of your body, including the gut lining and uh, to trigger repair process. So that's when a lot of the repair process will happen. Your uh, gut lining will get repaired. Many other tissues will get repaired. And then after maybe 12 hours, 12 to 14 hours, that's when a body will produce enough, will break down enough fatty acids or stored fat to produce a little bit of ketone. And this ketone um, now begins to fuel your body. And then ketone is also a very, Recent discoveries suggest that ketones are anti-inflammatory because they affect the immune system. The immune cells also like ketone in many different ways. Um, one is they can use it as fuel. Ketone mm. is a fuel. And second is ketones are also signaling molecules. So that means they can instruct the cell to do, to turn on different kind of programs. So one of the programs they turn on is anti-inflammatory program. Yeah. What we are also learning is this is just the tip of the iceberg because until now, no one has actually done a very systematic experiment, uh, even in laboratory mice, to see what happens during this 14 to 16 hours of fast in different organs. As we all know, we have at least a couple of dozen different organs and then our brain, different parts of the brain is also very different. So uh, only recently we started doing that. We took the same mice, um, uh, they're the same genotype, they're born to the same mom with the same microbiome. One group of mice got to eat whenever they wanted, the other group of mice were given food eight to nine hours every uh, night because mice are nocturnal. And then after a few weeks, we took out um, 20 plus different organs and brain regions from these mice in every two hours, over 24 hours, to see what is actually going on during this fasting process. 
And then we looked at all the genes in the genome. So that's 22,000 genes in each of these 20 plus organs at every time point in male and female mice. Uh, so it's a huge experiment and this is something that has never been done, even in uh, caloric restriction and other types of nutrient intervention. So the number one thing that we found is by imposing a strong feeding fasting cycle, we could see that nearly 80 plus percent of the genes were changing what time they were turned on or off or how high or low they're going up or down. Wow. So that means really by changing your eating time, you can be the master conductor of your all whole genetic program. And that was amazing because uh, in many previous studies, people just look at one organ, the liver or the gut or uh, fat tissues or muscle, and they find few hundred genes changing. But when you cast a wider net, so that means it impacts almost every organ in our body. This is huge. As a medical doctor, I'm always looking for a few things with my patients. First of all, I'm looking for what is the root cause of why this person's come in? Not necessarily the symptom, the symptom's mm -hmm. important to me, yeah. but it's more important for me to understand what's driving this in the first place. And I'm always looking to see how can I help my patient go further and further upstream? What's one change I can help them make that will have multiple downstream benefits? And what I hear with this new research that you guys are doing is the timing of your food intake, as you say, can be this master conductor and can have multiple effects on genes, inflammation, immune system function, all kinds of things. And, and one of the things that's always fascinates me about your work is the whole, the whole conversation around nutrition for many years, and even now, is still dominated by what we should be eating. You know, should it be fat, carbs, protein, what proportion? And I'm not saying those things are not important, but your research beautifully demonstrates that timing of food intake is something we also need to pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, so it's very intuitive and it's very simple to follow as well. So for example, I don't know about you, but I cannot remember how many calories I ate yesterday and what fraction of that calorie was a simple versus complex carb, uh, how much was protein, fat or carb. So for implementing in day-to-day -day life, although these are very important, quality and quantity of nutrition, the timing becomes very easy because we all know what time it is, uh, we, we schedule our whole day around time. Another thing that we are finding is when people control the timing of their food, then as I mentioned from our surprising discovery with uh, gene expression data, uh, they also seem to sleep well. And once their sleep improves, then the repair process improves. And once uh, somebody sleeps well, then the food craving and, and craving for energy-dense diet, that also goes down. So that means uh, by controlling timing, we can inadvertently change the nutrition quality and quantity. And that's now seen in many clinical trials with time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. People, although they are asked to eat within eight, nine, or 10 hours window and then leave the rest as fasting, 
um, when you go back to analyzing what they ate, um, then what we find is they modestly reduce their calorie intake by somewhere between five to 10. And in some cases, some people can reduce even by 20%, um, which is pretty good because um, intentional calorie restriction is very hard. For people to reduce calorie by even 10 to 20% every single day is very hard. So you're, so you're saying the side effects of people effect. focusing on a particular eating window, whether it be eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours, whatever it might be, yeah. you're seeing side effects that actually people are also consuming less calories without actively trying to reduce their calories. Yeah, because um, previously we thought some nutritionists um, had imagined that when people are going through a long period of fasting, they might gorge and eat more. Mm. Um, but we, we find exactly the opposite. People reduce their calorie. Second thing is since they're sleeping well, then they also improve their nutrition choice. Um, so in almost every study, we find people reduce their alcohol intake. Of course, there is less opportunity to drink alcohol. Um, and then they also reduce processed food. And we don't know why, but it may be because they're sleeping well, because a sleep-deprived brain actually looks for highly processed food, nutrient-dense diet. And when people sleep well, then they can take that decision. Um, I think everyone intuitively knows that, even yeah. if they don't understand the science. Yeah. I think everyone knows that experience when they haven't slept well, you know, Yes, you can talk to the science of leptin and ghrelin and the yeah. hunger hormone goes through the roof and your satiety hormone goes down. But actually, I think we all know when we haven't slept well, we're, we're, we want more caffeine. Yeah. We, we crave more food. You know, this happened to me a few days ago, hungry all the time and you're not craving yeah. healthy whole foods at yeah, that time. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, craving yeah. sugar, high dense, you know, high energy dense foods. Yeah, because your brain actually gets confused how long it will stay awake. And since brain consumes a huge amount of um, energy uh, per unit mass, um, that's why it kind of programs you to eat more because it doesn't know how long it will stay awake. Um, so that's one side effect that we see. So by, by tuning your timing and eating within eight to 10 hours, you can also reduce calorie and improve nutrition quality. And um, so that's where, although quality and quantity of nutrition are very important. Um, by focusing on timing, one can improve those two aspects too. So let's go into timing, yeah. okay? Lots of things happen in the body when we have a period of time without foods, ketone production, uh, reduction in inflammation, change in genetic expression, ability to repair and rejuvenate better. But I guess there's an ideal body clock that if the modern world didn't drive us to do certain things at certain times that we could all beautifully follow. And then there's real life for many people. Yeah. So let's start off by going, what does an ideal body clock look like for someone? Let's say they wake up. Mm -hmm. um, I know you're a big fan of saying that we should try not to eat for the first hour after waking up. Is that true? And if so, why is that? Um, so most of us, when we wake up, we, we're waking up to an alarm clock or um, we have to go to office or do something or take care of the children. So that's why we're waking up in the morning. So that means our sleep hormones are still high. Although we just dragged ourselves out of the bed, 
our hormones, uh, particularly melatonin, is still pretty high. Mm. And that takes an hour or two to go down. And within 45 minutes of waking up, our stress hormone cortisol reaches its peak. Uh, so this, this is the time when you can say changing of the guards that happens in the morning. <laughs> so the sleep hormones are coming down, the stress hormones are going up, and your body is actually not ready to digest food and assimilate nutrient uh, perfectly. Because uh, melatonin inhibits glucose-induced insulin uh, release from the pancreas. So that means within an hour of waking up, um, most of us still have pretty high level of melatonin, which can inhibit this insulin release. Uh, so if we eat something um, or drink tea with uh, milk and sugar, to process that, a body has to produce and release sufficient amount of insulin, which may not happen properly in the first one hour. So in the first hour, yeah. I love this changing of the garden analogy, particularly as you're in London at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's a very practical tip that everyone, no matter what diet they choose to follow, no matter what culture they're from, no matter what country yeah. they live in, that seems like quite a good universal principle for all of us. Whenever you wake up for the first hour, don't eat any food, but you're also saying no coffee or tea with milk and or sugar. So does that mean, according to this model, a black coffee or a black tea is okay at that time, or would you still advise that gets pushed a bit forward as well? Well, uh, many people ask me, why can't they have one small teaspoon of sugar or a little bit of uh, milk? So for an average size person like me, if you drain all of my blood, um, you'll get around five liters of blood. And since the glucose concentration in my blood should be below 100 milligram per deciliters, that means um, you'll get maximum five gram of sugar from my blood. So that means even if I drink a tea or coffee with half a teaspoon of sugar, so that's 2.2 grams of sugar, if that's not processed properly, then my blood sugar level will shoot up to 140 or 160 around that. Oh. So that's why yeah. even... <laughs> even and, and you're saying at that time, you're yeah. not going to be able to, or you're unlikely to be able to process it properly. Properly. Because you've still got these sleep hormones, things like yeah. melatonin and the stress on the cortisol are kicking around the system still, yeah. which is potentially going to interfere with the way that you process that sugar. So if you do want to have a hot drink when you wake up, like many people do, yeah. you would advise keep it black, basically. Keep it black and... Um, or herbal tea or something. Herbal tea and, yeah. Because some people just need that hot drink to, to start their day. And initially I was a little skeptical because this is an experiment we can never do in mice. We cannot wake up mice and give little herbal tea and see what happens. Um, but if, if somebody really needs coffee or tea to begin the day because he or she is sleepy, then that's also a warning sign that the person is not sleeping well. Mm. Um, so you may have to kind of interpret that you may have to go to sleep a little bit earlier in the day. Yeah. So I used to uh, say that there are three exceptions to the coffee rule in the morning. <laughs> so one is, if your job depends on it. Uh, so for example, you're a physician, you're going to see patients and you're, you should be alert because if yeah. you make a mistake, then 
that can be quite deadly, literally. Uh, second is for public safety. If you're driving, <laughs> and we know in the US, one in three drivers in the morning is sleep deprived that is, and needs coffee. And the third one is if that's the only love in your life, then <laughs> we are not going to deprive you. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah. those, those three are really beautiful because there's a real practical element to that, isn't yeah, there? There's yeah. like, there's optimal. Yeah. There's what ideally for our biology to live in harmony with our circadian biology, there's a way to live, but there's also a practicality yeah. depending yeah. on your life. And I think that third one yeah. is a really nice one. You know, yeah. if that is your real yeah. love in life or that's yeah. something because of whatever's going on in your life, that that is something that's really important to you, then yeah. that has to be taken into consideration. Yeah. Would you say ideally, if you could, that in that one hour after waking, you would ideally avoid any caffeine as well? As Do you, do you is any of your research looked at that or, or not no, particularly? Actually, there are other circadian researchers who have beautifully shown that caffeine actually resets our clock. It's almost um, the effect of caffeine on resetting or synchronizing our clock to the outside world or to coffee drinking is as good as um, getting strong exposure to light. But I won't go to that extent because light has many other benefits that ca caffeine cannot do. Um, so in a way, caffeine is pretty good to for many people. For some people, it can be a little bit tricky. Those who have Acid reflux, um, having a strong black coffee uh, can exaggerate that and people may see more serious acid reflux problem. Um, but if you, for example, if you go back to the history of breakfast, breakfast actually, um, people were not eating breakfast in the old days. Uh, <laughs> if you go back to the history of coffee, for example, in Turkey, and in Turkey, when people started drinking coffee in Istanbul in the morning, um, and strong coffee, a lot of them, they started experiencing this morning acid reflux. And to reduce that acid reflux, they had little food with coffee. Right. And that food with coffee became breakfast. If you wow. look at the Turkish uh, name for breakfast, that essentially means the food before your coffee to reduce wow. the <laughs> acid reflux effect of coffee. Yeah. Okay, so morning time, one hour, no food if yeah. possible. If you can have a drink, tea or coffee, keep it black. Yeah. What else should we be thinking about doing at the start of the day to help us robustly support this natural circadian clock that we have inside us? Yeah, so another uh, thing is light because our body clock is in trend or synchronized by food, but our brain clock is actually synchronized by light. And light is also, light also reduces sleepiness. We all know that because it's very hard to fall asleep mm -hmm. in a uh, lighted room. And in the morning, if you want to wake up your children, then just open your <laughs> windows and, and they are more likely to wake up. And this is very important because um, many of us, most of us actually don't get enough light in the morning to synchronize our brain circadian clock and to reduce sleepiness and depression. So light is a strong antidepressant um, and it has been documented in many, many studies. So if you have the chance to go outside to the balcony or even open all the windows in your room, you'll get good amount of light. And when I say good amount of light, you need around thousand lux of light 
for 30 minutes to an hour to synchronize your clock and to reduce uh, sleepiness and depression. Um, even on a cloudy day in England, you get 5,000 to 10,000 lux of light outdoor. And if you're sitting right next to the window, sipping your coffee or tea or drinking your, uh, or eating your breakfast or reading your newspaper, then you're getting around 800 to 1,000 lux of light. So that's one thing that you can do during this uh, one hour time. Or um, if you have to get ready, if you're in, a, in the bathroom and if you have a um, dimmable bathroom light, crank it up. And, crank it up. And, you'll, and if you have those um, modern bathroom mirrors that have the light integrated, then that's actually pretty good because light falls straight into your eye and you can crank it up to 800 to 1000 lux at full um, strength. And, and that's a good way to get the morning light. What about movements at this time? How does that fit into our body's natural clocks? Yeah, so exercise is always good. Um, I mean, most of the time, you, you don't have to exercise in the middle of the night, but any exercise is better than no exercise. So you can combine um, exercise with light exposure by going for a light walk or um, morning run outdoor, or if you're going to a gym, also choose a place that gets a lot of light. So you can combine both light and exercise. Exercise and circadian clock, um, they reciprocally interact with each other. So that means exercise has some impact, not as much impact as food or light. Um, but the clock has a lot of impact on when is the perfect time for you to exercise. And we'll get to that uh, as we move towards afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what I like about that initial morning recommendation yeah. is that you can actually hit all three bases yeah. in one go. If you are able to go for a walk yeah. in the morning, then, and you don't take a drink with you, <laughs> right, then and you don't take a snack with you, then number one, you're, you're not going to be eating or yeah. drinking. Yeah. You're going to be getting exposure to natural light and you're going to be moving your body. Yeah. So that's a really powerful thing that we can do. One thing yeah. that has multiple benefits yeah. on our physiology and on our circadian clock. Before we move beyond that, you mentioned something that I found fascinating. Food helps us reset our body clock Light helps reset our brain's clock. C can you explain what, what, what is the difference between our, our body clock and our brain clock? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Bon Charge, who are sponsoring today's show. Now, sleep, as you might have heard me say on many occasions, is something that we really want to get right if we want to be in optimal health. Better sleep means better relationships, more focus, better mental health, and better physical health. And Bon Charge are a brand that is dedicated to helping you sleep better and live better. They have a whole range of wellness products to help you get more out of life. In my house, all the bedside lamps for myself, my wife, and my children have Bon Charges and the low light bulbs in them, which have made a huge difference to our sleep quality. 
We also all regularly wear their blue light blocking glasses, especially in the evening, their blackout eye masks, and I also really like their EMF protection earbud air tubes, which I got a few months ago and are now my go-to headphones. I really would encourage you to check out their new website and see what products there could help you and your family. You can get 20% off all of their products by going to bondcharge.com forward slash live more and use the coupon code live more. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com forward slash live more and use the coupon code live more to save 20%. Vivo Barefoot are also bringing you today's show. Now, I've been wearing and recommending Vivo Barefoot shoes for over 10 years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. I've seen so many benefits when people wear minimalist shoes like Vivo's. I've seen improvements in back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, even things like plantar fasciitis, as well as a generalized increased enjoyment of movement. Scientific research has shown that just a few months of wearing Vivos for your daily activity increases your foot strength by almost 60%. That is an incredible statistic. It doesn't really surprise me. Just have a think about that. We want our feet to be strong and able to look after us and support us for life. And simply wearing minimalist shoes for your everyday life can help you do this. Viva Barefoot have a great range of shoes for kids and adults. They are the only shoes that my wife and I wear and the only shoes that I will get for my children. If you've never tried them before, I really would encourage you to give them a go. It's completely risk-free to do so. They offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you just send them back for a full refund. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions do apply. To get your 20% off codes, all you have to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. So uh, almost every cell in our body, in every organ has its own clock. Um, and when we say clock, um, one thing that comes to our brain, that comes to our mind is sleep because mm-hmm. um, we go to sleep every night and then wake up. And if we think what happens during sleeps, and during sleep, many things happen to our brain and uh, three, uh, that can be summarized into three things. One is repair, reset, and rejuvenation. Our brain repairs itself. We know that the brain takes out its, mm. uh, its uh, trust, um, um, and that has been shown recently. Um, rejuvenation, so the brain's cells connect with each other much better, synaptic um, strengthening, and it resets itself for the, for the next day. So similarly, every cell in our body has to repair itself and goes through this. So now, um, all these clocks have to also be synchronized with each other. So that means our liver clock should be in sync with our gut clock so that our gut has its own timing when uh, the digestive juice is produced and it also has a better time when it can absorb all the nutrient and the liver has to process. So uh, liver also has a peak time or 
preferred time when it can process all the nutrients. So all these clocks have to be synchronized with each other. And what we find is if somebody decides to eat in the middle of the night, wakes up with dim light and eats some food, then all these clocks, they will think, all the body clock, they'll think, huh, maybe this person moved to a different time zone. So they will try to reset themselves, anticipating that next day this person will also eat in the middle of the night. So, uh, so but this the brain what, clock doesn't reset to that food cue. Uh, so, so this is why consistency is so important yeah, yeah. because actually, so I'll tell you what happened a few nights ago. So uh, it's Thursday morning as we record this. Yeah. Now, normally for me, I, I have a consistent lifestyle and yeah. usually my rhythm is that I will go to bed at 9 p.m. Maybe sometimes before, but roughly I'll be you know, in the bedroom from 9 p.m. a bit before or asleep then, mm -hmm. and I'll wake up around five. That is, I'm at my best when I do that. I have sort of rhythms around my life and my work that help me stick to that. Now on Tuesday night, I came down to London and I was doing my very first live podcast event on stage in the evening. So the event started at 8 p.m. You know, this is with lights on me, uh, and yeah. my guest on stage. By the time I left the venue, uh, it was probably about 11.15 p.m. And I had eaten early, but I got back to my hotel room. I was I was still wired yeah. it mentally. Uh, really had a wonderful evening. And I had some, you know, healthy kind of food in my hotel room. I had some cashew nuts. I think I had some uh, dried mango slice as well, which we can argue whether that's yeah, healthy yeah, or yeah. not. And even though I know your research, even though I've written books referencing your research, <laughs> I'm a human being and I thought, oh, I just have a little bit. So I was just unwinding with that. Yeah. So I was probably eating at around midnight, right? Yeah. I still woke up the next day at five, even though I didn't want to, I didn't have to be up, but yeah. it's like clockwork in my yeah. body. I, I wake up at five, no alarm clock. Yeah. I felt exhausted the following day, all day. Obviously, yeah. I had less sleep. Yeah. I was hungry all the time at times when I wouldn't normally be hungry. And so I really struggled on Wednesday. This is yesterday. Yeah. I just wasn't with it. And I still don't feel recovered today, even yeah. though I had a pretty good night's sleep last night. So maybe you can unpick that a little bit for me. Yeah, so that's... Uh... Uh, so a few things happened. One was your body clock was not ready to get that food. So uh, when you ate, uh, your digestive system had already gone to sleep. Although you didn't sleep, your brain did not go to sleep. Your body's, all the other clocks have already thought that it's time to sleep. The kitchen had closed, so they, they were going to sleep. So when you ate that food, um, that was not easily digested because the gut was not producing enough acid and then the nutrient absorption didn't happen. And uh, essentially you woke up with food hangover. Yeah, <laughs> because that's what I call it as well. You literally <laughs> food yeah. hangover. Uh, but at the same time, when they when all these organs are woken up by food, it's not that they will just leave the food like that. They will try to digest, and at the same time, they will think that okay, maybe from tomorrow, Rangan is going to eat at midnight. So let's try to reset ourselves. So so the next day, they're trying to reset themselves. At the same time. Um, your brain is producing other hormones 
that help all these other organs. Uh, so there is a, what we call um, desynchronized clocks. Your brain clock and your body clocks are in different time zones and they're trying to figure out what will be your next day's schedule. So that's why um, you're feeling that discomfort on Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I know you've got two brilliant books out there. The new one, The Circadian Diabetes Codes. In this one, there's something I highlighted, which is if you eat or if you behave out of sync with your clock, it can take you quite a few days to recover. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm feeling at the moment. I feel that one aberration, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, even though it was kind of healthy whole foods. Yeah. And I think this is really key. It's not just what you're eating, it's when you're eating as well. This is a key message from your work. I'm still struggling today because of what I did in that, I wouldn't say a moment of weakness, <laughs> but maybe, maybe a moment of yeah, weakness yeah. on Tuesday nights. Yeah. Can you explain it? Because I think a lot of us are doing this without realizing it. We, we think, ah, you know, a little bit of this now. But actually, it can take us quite a bit of time to recover. Yeah. So two things. One is your story clearly demonstrated timing can make healthy food junk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> timing makes, or mistiming can make healthy food junk. Um, so by eating that healthy food in the middle of the night when your body was not expecting it, um, your body reacted as if you ate some junk food. Um, it's very similar to your best friend knocking on your door in the middle of the night um, for a friendly chat, not even anything. And I don't think you'll be uh, friendly with that person <laughs> too much. So that's one. And then the second thing is those who, uh, who are doing shift work or who travel quite a few time zones, um, two to three time zones, um, it's very normal for them to understand that when you change time zone, it can take three to four days and even sometimes seven days to adjust your sleep-wake cycle to the new time zone. So the rule of thumb is it takes one day to reset your sleep-wake cycle uh, by one hour. So that means if you're traveling three time zones, then it can take up to three hours. So for in your case, um, if you are eating, say, <laughs> if your dinner is usually at 6 or 7 p.m. I'm done by 7. 7. I'm, and, I'm normally by 6, 6.30, I'm done. Yeah. Um, oh, man, so that's like six that's time like zones. Four, six time zones. So that's what your body felt like you have traveled six time zones. So uh, it will try to readjust itself for the next six days. But the good thing is you came back to your... Um, previous schedule so you can reduce that jet lag. We yeah. call it social jet lag because it's not real jet lag. You're not doing jet travel, but your body thought because of social obligations and social events, um, you ate at the wrong time. So it's called social jet lag. This idea that you can turn healthy food into junk food by eating it at the wrong time I think is really, really powerful. And it's a message that I hope spreads far and wide because this timing piece is, is arguably for me one of the big missing pieces when we are trying to help people change their health. It's like what to do, but yeah. we don't tell people, we don't advise people when to do these things. And 
since I've shifted my whole lifestyle and work patterns, everything to suit a rhythm that I can consistently do, and I'm lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. Right? I appreciate not everyone can do that, especially if you're doing shift work and it's yeah. changing from day to day or every three days you're on a different pattern. And we'll hopefully get to that later in the conversation. Every part of my life gets better. Gut function is better. Energy is better. I rarely get sick. You know, all yeah. kinds of things start yeah. to happen. And one of the most powerful things I think about the work that your lab has done is it shows that when you really pay attention to the timing of multiple things, but let's say food yeah. and lights, right? But let's say even just foods, there's benefits for weight loss, there's benefits for immune function, for reducing inflammation, for gut function. Um, you know, Kidney function, we are finding. Kidney function. Yeah. Yeah, so instead of trying to do something for your gut and something for your kidney and something for inflammation, it's like, well, hold on a minute. Why don't we just work on an eating window that's gonna work for you? So let, let's go there to an eating window. Yeah. You published your first seminal paper almost 10 years ago to the dates, which basically sparked off this phenomena around the world, which has gone into multiple different directions of intermittent fasting. Yeah. In the last 10 years, from all the research you've done, from all the research you've seen being done around the world, uh, with the understanding that everyone's unique and everyone's different, do you think you have a universal recommendation, like <laughs> a, this kind of eating window is gonna work for most people? Do you know what, would you have a number that you would recommend? Yeah, so that's a little tough. Um, it is so a tough let, one, yeah. So let, let's start from, uh, means we started the conversation from the morning. Okay. And we said uh, one hour we should not eat. And then um, when should we eat? Um, so the breakfast or the first meal uh, that breaks your fast, because let's redefine breakfast. Breakfast is actually the first meal that breaks your fast. Okay. Not the morning, not necessarily the morning meal that you have to eat. Um, so uh, you have to eat your breakfast at a consistent time because of this, its effect on body clock because the breakfast time actually is most powerful in resynchronizing all your, all your clocks and then telling, okay, so I'm in the same time zone, uh, let's start the day. And then the question is, should somebody eat within four hours, six hours, eight hours, 10 hours or 12 hours or more? Um, so we can do some simple math and then we'll reach what would be the ideal one. Okay. Okay, so we know that after we eat, after, after we finish our dinner for the, first, for the next five hours, it's not actually fasting, it's digesting our food in the stomach. So that means um, we should have those five hours uh, set aside. And then, um, we should actually sleep for, uh, we should be in bed for eight hours. So even if you, suppose say you finish your dinner at 6 p.m., you're not going to sleep right away because your stomach is digesting food, your core body temperature is high because blood is flowing to the, to the stomach to absorb that nutrient. So you need two to three hours um, after your dinner to get ready for your sleep. So now uh, we'll take two to three hours after your last meal, and then add eight hours of being in bed. So eight hours plus two hours, so that's 10 hours. So now in the morning, you've got to wait for an hour. So that's 11 hours. So that leaves 13 hours window within which 
one can choose to eat for X number of hours. So nobody should eat for more than 13 hours unnecessarily, according to this math. So now if we come back to clinical studies, um, there are some studies where people were asked to eat everything within 12 hours every single day. Um, but unfortunately, we didn't see much benefit. So 12 hours um, every single day is not a good idea. Then if we look at... When you say not a good idea, let's say, and I know your app has mm -hmm. shown that a lot of people are eating over 15 hours. 15 hours. Right? Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize they're doing that. Yeah. Right? Because that includes, of course, sugar in their coffee or a little snack in front of the TV at night. So if you are currently consuming over 15 hours or 14 hours, yeah. right? Yeah. Moving to only doing it over 12 hours, presumably, is a good thing? So it's a good thing to some extent. But what happens is people who are... Um, Yes, somebody is, if someone is eating over 16 hours and now moves to 12 hours, that person will get some benefit because that four hours delta, the change in re reducing eating window by four hours uh, will benefit that person. Okay. Um, and uh, many different types of benefits may in improve nutrition quality and then we don't know whether it will help to reduce caloric intake. Uh, significantly to the point that the person will see some benefit. So there's some benefit there, but you're saying some of the research, when you took people and put them in a 12-hour eating window, so 12 hours in 24 where they're not eating, yeah. hopefully they're sleeping for seven or eight hours yeah, of yeah, those, yeah. you're saying you didn't get many benefits? No, so uh, again, these are clinical trials with a lot of people. So yeah. we are, we are um, comparing the averages. But there are some people in those group who actually saw benefit. But if we average all of them, okay. then we don't see that. So uh, from clinical trial point of view, we have to always do the stats and... Um, but that, you know, I'm just gonna pause you, that's such an important point because one almost universal recommendation I have with most of my patients is let's at least start off making sure you're eating all of your food within a 12 hour window maximum. Yes. Right? So. That's often my starting point. And a lot of people, if they can't do that, or yeah. they say that they struggle, I say, okay, you should be able to do that. So let yeah. me help you get to a point where you can do that. Because sometimes if they've, yeah. their blood sugar imbalances or hormonal imbalance sometimes, or it's just conditioning. Yeah. Okay, so in the 12 hours, some people saw benefit, but overall you couldn't say that there was a huge benefit. Now I guess uh, let's dial back because every clinical trial also has inclusion exclusion criteria. So that means, what type of people were studied. Yeah. And in this study, uh, we didn't have people who had any chronic disease. So they were just overweight or oh, okay. obese. They didn't have um, too much complications. They didn't have high blood pressure consistently or uh, high blood glucose. Even in my new book, uh, The Circadian Diabetes Code, I also tell that just try 12 hours for the first two weeks. Yeah. And then you see whether you can even do 12 hours. If you can do 12 hours, then you can then try start to, experimenting then you can with start. less. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, so there are all these caveats to uh, clinical trials. So it's uh, important to know what is the inclusion-exclusion criteria? What type of people were studied? Yeah. Second, what was the baseline eating habit? Because if they are starting from, say, 13 hours or 14 hours eating window and they're trying to shrink it to 12 hours, you may not see too much 
Dr. Fanda, <laughs> what you're talking about is nuance and perspectives and context, something that is uh, fast becoming a thing of the past, certainly on social media, that yeah. this kind of, because this is important, isn't it? Instead this of us important. seeing the headline of the study, this doesn't work, this does work, it's like, well, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, let's just say this, this average didn't work, yeah. for who? What kind of people? Yeah. Was it a man, was it a woman? Was it, did they have chronic disease, did they not? You know? yeah. And that's often missing in the kind of discourse around this stuff. Yeah, so that's why I think anyone who is reading the headline has to ask these questions. Which type of people are studied? What is the baseline characteristic, habit and health condition? What did they try to do? Could they actually do that? Because in many study, um, if I was just asked to eat within eight hours and I never kept any record and I came back after 12 weeks and I said, hey, I didn't see any benefit, but I don't have any record to say that I actually tried this, then that's also flawed. So these three or four things we have to keep in mind. Mm. The, the baseline characteristic, what type of people I studied and whether there was monitoring, uh, whether so for example, in many caloric restriction studies where people are asked to reduce calories, um, people are also asked to diligently record all their food, portion size, so mm -hmm. scientists can figure out whether they reduced calorie. So similarly, in many of the time-restricted feeding stud eating studies or intermittent fasting studies, well, we have to look for those things, like where they monitored, did they really reduce their eating time and how much they reduced, what is their baseline characteristic, and um, what kind of benefits they found. So going back to 12 hours, what we find is yes, people can start with 12 hours. And as we did the math, there's only 13 hours available to you to eat, to choose a window. And if you can do 12 hours, then that's a good starting point. In all of our clinical studies, what we uh, do is we ask people to choose a 10 hour window that uh, suits their lifestyle. And this is, very important because we are not asking people to start eating breakfast at eight o'clock or nine o'clock or seven o'clock, or we are not even asking to skip breakfast or skip dinner. We just ask them a very simple idea that try to eat within 10 hours with some caveat that your first meal should be at least an hour after waking up and your last meal should be two to three hours before going to bed. So within that window, you're gonna choose that 10 hours that works for you. And in both mouse studies and in human studies, what we're finding is if people can do this 10 hours for five days in a week or six days in a week, and they can have one cheat day where they can go a little bit outside the eating window, we still see many benefits in people who have one or multiple items of metabolic syndrome. So that means they have obesity plus high blood pressure or high triglyceride or high blood sugar, uh, even multiple of these conditions. And what we find is if they can do 10 hours um, for 12 weeks, then we do see improvement in uh, almost all of these elements of metabolic uh, syndrome. Some are more profound and some take a little bit longer time um, particularly blood triglyceride takes a little bit more time. Blood pressure improvement happens within six to eight weeks. Um, blood sugar also improves in 10 to 12 weeks um, if they do 10 hours. 
it's also important to remember that many people who have obesity with metabolic disease, they're so used to eating over a long window of time that it becomes very difficult for them to shrink that eating window to 12, then 10, and shrinking that to eight hours becomes very difficult to, for a lot of people. In fact, in some of, couple of our studies where uh, our collaborators wanted people to eat within eight hours, Although they started with eight hours, um, towards the end of the experiment, uh, 12 weeks, when we look at the real data, uh, we found that they were mostly drifting towards 10 hours. So 10 hours seems to be a number that many people can adapt uh, the eating window. Yeah. Um, and it's also, it gives them a sweet spot that they can still have their social life and yeah. enjoy life um, and improve their health. Yeah, a couple of things there for me. Um, I agree, some people really struggle initially. Yeah. Um, but actually some people also find it quite liberating, I found. There is a subsection of my patients who, in the past, I found that they find like an eight-hour window where they're eating very liberating and once they get used to it, yeah. they actually find that they've got more energy, less hunger. It speaks to this idea that we can maybe train our circadian biology to a certain degree by having a consistent pattern. Yeah. And you know, as we have this conversation, I've been in clinical practice for over 20 years, right? And I've learned that very few things apply for every single person. <laughs> and you have to take into account a person's lifestyle, their previous history, their job, what their family are doing, all these kind of things. And so I have these recommendations, but I'm loosely attached to them because I realize that people have to be able to, to personalize them. You know, you've done a lot of science on this, right? Which is clearly in the times in which we live, a lot of people need that science to persuade them that this is something I should be doing. But if we just zoom out for a minute mm -hmm. and look back at our evolutionary history as humans, actually, it's hard to make the case that we would have been eating consistently over 13, 14, 15 hours and every 24 hours. You know, we would have naturally had these long periods where we didn't eat in every 24 hours. So yes, there's science to support it, but there's also, if we look at our lives through an evolutionary lens, it kind of works as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And in fact, uh, yeah, our ancestors, hunter-gatherers or farmers, um, they didn't have access to plenty of food. And another thing was um, they didn't have access to processed food. So food was not ready for consumption any time of the day. So in the morning, um, people typically spend time gathering food or preparing for cooking. And um, the first substantial meal uh, was maybe around lunchtime. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the evening, after everybody came back home, um, that evening time was very important and it's still important. And if we think about human history, um, what we do in the first six hours of the evening after we get home, that actually determines every aspect of our life. Because after we come home, our hunter-gatherer ancestors or farmers, they lighted a fire and they cooked or grilled food or whatever they had gathered and then they shared that food. So there was a social aspect of eating. And then that's the time when people feel liberated from their daily life. So you have come home, you are not working for a boss 
And that freedom time, two to three hours after dinner, is very important for a lot of people. And our ancestors, hunter-gatherers, that's the time when life changed. Uh, so daytime, people thought about how to work to bring food to the table. And after dinner, they became more creative. That's when people started um, singing, dancing, talking about philosophy and science and politics. Um, so that's the our cradle of civilization is actually in that evening time. So we should not forget that. So we have to keep in mind that uh, people have to come back and in um, their lifestyle, they have to socialize and uh, do certain things. And uh, that dinner time is very important. Uh, so uh, going back to your question uh, that people have to relate not only to science, but also to society and culture and how we have evolved on this planet, they can keep that in context and maybe delay the breakfast in the morning because that's what our ancestors did. And uh, that also aligns with our physiology because when people are in experiments, when people are isolated inside the laboratory without any cue what time of the day or night it is, what we have found is our hunger, subjective hunger actually reaches its peak in the evening, not in the morning. And that makes sense because a lot of people actually will say that they don't feel that hungry in the morning. But almost everybody would say that they have some hunger in late afternoon or evening. So we are programmed to be hungry towards the end of the day. And that hunger, since it's universal, everybody feels that. That's also is a basis for that socializing and um, consuming food in a gathering and then discussing something other than how to, <laughs> how to make money to bring food to the table. How, how does this fit with, there's quite a lot of research that I've read which is showing that if we consume the bulk of our calories in the first half of our day compared to the second half of the day, that can have powerful effects on our circadian clock, on weight, on sleep, on immune function, all kinds of things. And so, yeah. you know, there's obviously a phrase, isn't there, breakfast like a king, yeah. lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper which I think works really well for a lot of people, actually. Yeah, yeah. But how does that fit in with what you've just said, which is that we are wired to maybe feel hungry later on in the day, maybe late afternoon, early evening? Because on the face of it, it might seem as though these things are quite opposing. Yeah. So when I say that, it's not that we are saying that people should just consume food in the evening. Okay. Uh, they still... <laughs> uh, it's true that in the first half of the day, uh, our blood sugar control is much better. And um, as physician, you might have seen that if you do a oral glucose tolerance test, which is looking at blood glucose uh, X number of hours after um, a bolus of sugary drink, then um, the same person may, may look normal in the morning when the glucose tolerance test is done. But in the evening, that person's glucose will shoot up. Uh, or late night it will shoot up and you may diagnose that person as diabetic. Uh, so there is this aspect of our glucose regulation, particularly insulin producing cells have their own clock so that um, blood glucose level mm. uh, shoots up in the evening. So that brings up what we should eat at different time of the day. And the analogy that, that I gave, uh, again, another thing is our hunter-gatherers, 
uh, when they were lighting up the fire, they're not lighting a fire to actually eat berries. They're lighting a fire to eat meat or complex carb that needed a little bit of uh, cooking so that that yeah. would become palatable. They were not actually lighting fire to um, warm up their chips and ice cream to eat. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so that means uh, the biology and, and the social aspect still holds good that in the first half of the day, they're more likely eating food that was easily palatable, which already had a lot of simple sugar or easily digestible food, which typically raises our blood glucose. And right. so that uh, our insulin producing cells can manage that. Whereas the late night or late evening, whatever they were eating, they were mostly um, food that was rich in fat and maybe protein. And that would help them to go through the long period of fasting overnight. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, actually. It also brings up this idea that when we're trying to compare modern humans with our evolutionary biology and hunter-gatherers, there's another big piece that we miss, which is many of us these days have broken metabolism. Yeah. You know, if you look at the numbers in terms of how many people, yes, are type 2 diabetic, but also pre-diabetic, yeah. which means fundamentally we have issues already with our ability to maintain our blood sugar and you know, our, our body's not functioning optimally. I, d I can't remember what the stats are now, but it's, I don't know. So in the US now, almost half of the adults are pre-diabetic or type two diabetic. Do you know what it is in the half. UK? I think it might even be. It might be similar because it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Very similar. Very so, similar. So therefore, if we're trying to make a comparison, it's like, yeah, wait a minute though. Yeah, maybe they were hungry early evening and maybe there was a big part of their culture and community around that. But if you are someone who is already struggling with blood sugar, yeah. so you are not like those hunter-gatherers, yeah. <laughs> then actually what you're saying from your research is that we're much more efficient at managing our blood sugar earlier on in the day than later on in the day. Yeah. So this is where we have to be a bit cleverer with our recommendations. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Use, yeah, yeah. use history to help us, yeah. but not to completely kind of enslave us and saying this is what they did, so this is what we should do. No, actually, yeah. So we should we should break that comparison because you know our hunter-gatherer ancestors they lived to the life uh, of say thirty-five or forty years <laughs> old because uh, life expectancy was less than forty-five years. Um, Although a lot of people will say that's yeah, because yeah. of high infant mortality. Yeah. So, and so high infant mortality and other, uh, so. But anyways, uh, the point is, yes, in the first half of the day, our ability to handle glucose is much better. So that means for the first half, um, particularly you can plan your breakfast in a way that you can have your sweet treat or <laughs> your little bit of complex carb and uh, a balanced um, breakfast. And then as you move towards dinner, you can actually plan to have a little bit more protein and fat to help you go through the uh, nightly fast and also to help you live with your own physiology that your insulin response yeah. is pretty bad. Can you summarize, if most people, if anyone listening to this or watching this goes, okay, I'm going to now try and uh, eat all of my foods that I'm gonna consume, whatever diet that yeah, might yeah. be, within a 10 hour eating window. So first thing I want to clarify, well, within a 10 hour eating window, can you list what are some of the benefits they may get. 
Yeah, so uh, once people eat within 10 hours eating window, um, what we find is uh, within few days, um, that may be two to three weeks, they may find that sleep will improve. And this is something that we find in many of our patients uh, who self-report how is their sleep. Um, it may not increase the number of hours they sleep, but it may just improve their sleep satisfaction. They might actually get into a better sleep, quality mm -hmm. of sleep will improve. Um, then those who have acid reflux, I don't know the numbers in the US, in the UK, but in the US, um, there are 65 million prescriptions for acid reflux written every year. Yeah. And there is a lot of over-the-counter acid reflux medication. So that means almost more than half of the adult population experiences some kind of acid reflux or stomach issues every week. Uh, so we also hear that um, people have much better um, gut health uh, within two to four weeks, and they will feel that. Um, so sleeping better and then having better gut health will also improve the sense of energy in the morning and throughout the day. So these are the, we think that these three benefits are the positive feedback loop that helps people to sustain with eight hours or 10 hours yeah. eating window. Then. Those who have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes um, with um, minimal medication, for example, metformin, um, they may also find that blood sugar control will improve, particularly the night time or the, the time period in which they are fasting. Um, at least in that period, 14 hours or 16 hours, um, the blood sugar will remain uh, much better under control. Then uh, surprisingly, in many studies, although we haven't connected how it works, we find that people with hypertension, uh, they improve both their systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure. And that can happen between six to eight weeks after trying this um, regimen. So the flip side is if uh, people are already on hypertensive drugs, then after four to six weeks, they should actually check their blood pressure to make sure yeah. that they should do some mid-doses uh, adjustment. I think this is just, I think we should pause there because I think this is an important point. There are all these incredible benefits on the other side of this. Yeah. And so one of my cautions with patients, and, and again, I'd caution anyone listening or watching, if you have type two diabetes or if you are on any blood sugar lowering medication from your doctor, yeah. you might want to just have a chat first because yes because your blood sugar starts to come down, you may not need that. So what I've always done is I would stop like something like glyclozide, for example, which yeah. can drop blood sugar. Yeah. I would usually stop that yeah. when we're transitioning over and then revisit this in a few weeks to see, you know, or a few months, you know, what do we need now? Metformin usually is okay, yeah, I've found. Yeah, metformin is okay. Um, but blood pressure medicines, yeah. so you would agree with that. Be yeah. cautious yeah. with those, talk to your doctor first. Yeah. Um, so, if you have some health issues, there are benefits, right? But what about that person listening who goes, well, actually, you know, I feel, I kind of feel okay. Like I haven't got pre-diabetes. I haven't got much of a weight issue. What are the benefits for me, Dr. Panda, of eating all my food within a 10 hour eating window? I think everybody would agree that they need a little bit more energy. Yeah. <laughs> and they may not have other health issues, but almost many of us, they, we, have little joint problem, we feel a little pain, and um, overall, um, 
other things that we are finding biochemically and with all the gene expression analysis, what we're finding is uh, the kidney function improves, um, our muscle repair also improves. Uh, there are now new studies showing that circadian clock is involved in repairing tendons and ligaments. Um, so injuries. Injuries, um, particularly recovery from injuries. And if we think about it, actually every day we'll, we injure some some of our joints, ligaments, and muscles. We are on a continuous rejuvenation process. And that's why I say that just like our brain, when it sleeps, it resets, rejuvenates, and repairs itself. Uh, almost every tissue in our system repairs itself. And um, whether you're an athlete or elite athlete or just a recreational athlete, uh, it also helps to repair uh, recover from injuries. What about athletic performance? You yeah, know, do so, we have anything on that? Yeah, so athletic performance, at least our mice are more athletic. <laughs> so mice become more athletic? Yeah. So uh, when, they, when you restrict the mice's eating window, they become more athletic. Yeah, so in mice, it's, uh, it's very profound. Um, so in the 10 years ago, when we published this paper, um, uh, one question was, well, since these mice are eating within eight to nine hours, are they actually, uh, is their muscle weak so that <laughs> they cannot perform well? So we had to put these mice on treadmill to measure how, how long they can be on treadmill before they become exhausted and cannot run anymore. So normal mouse in the treadmill condition, the inclination and resistance that we applied, normal mouse should run around 60 minutes on treadmill. And then if the mouse is eating unhealthy diet, that would run around 45 minutes. And these mice that ate within eight hours, surprisingly, they could stay on the treadmill for 120 minutes. So twice longer than regular mice that were eating normal healthy diet, but whenever they wanted. So that was really eye-opening for us to see their exercise performance improve that much. So coming back to humans, although elite athletes and people who are training pretty well, they have already maximized, optimized their mm. lifestyle. But what we find is even among them, they do see some improvement in their athletic performance, whether it's strength training or endurance training. And this is very important because if you're competitive, then a fraction of a second actually makes the difference. Mm. So this is something that if we combine your optimum nutrition, optimum sleep with optimum nutrition timing, that can actually help. Yeah. And for many bodybuilders, um, they're asked to eat in every two to three hours. And I have heard that a lot of them actually put set an alarm to wake up in the middle of the night and eat. And some of them, when they start doing this time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting with optimum nutrition, uh, first thing they report is the acid reflux. They thought that acid reflux is so common that it must be normal, but oh. it's not. <laughs> so that acid reflux goes away and they actually feel more energetic because there are many bodybuilders yeah. who don't feel that uh, full of energy uh, throughout the day. Yeah, I mean, I find this whole area fascinating because I, I believe that live in harmony with your circadian biology as much as you can. Yeah. And frankly, there's very few areas in your life that won't improve as a consequence, yeah. whether we talk about health or beyond health. I, I yeah. really passionately have seen that with patients. I've experienced it myself. To the point where, you know, it's interesting. I, 
I rarely come to London anymore to do podcasts, right? But for whatever reason, I'm here this week and I've got, you know, a busy day. And I know I'm aiming to get a train home tonight from Euston Station at around 7 p.m., which kind of means I probably won't walk into my house till 9.30. Yeah. Now, I, that, that means I've got two options. One option is I can wait till I get home and have a really nice kind of healthy meal that technically you would say is better for me. You know, I know the ingredients, yeah. I know what's in it. Maybe it's something my wife cooks earlier for her and the kids that I'm, I can eat when I get back. I've done that before, but I realized for me, either I skip dinner, but if I'm hungry, I'm better getting something as healthy as I can at Euston Station, yeah. eating it on the train and finishing eating by about 7, 7.15, something like that. And I found for me, I can have a, and this really speaks to this idea you said before that you can make healthy foods junk by eating it at the wrong times. Yeah. I've realized for me, I'm better off getting something where I compromise on, let's say, nutrient quality a little bit and have it at 6.45, 7 p.m., rather than wait and have a, a better whole food meal later in the evening, which I think really speaks to the point that you're making. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to comment on is my son's 11, and one thing me and him do most Saturday mornings, if not every Saturday morning, is go to the local park run which is a 5K yeah. run around yeah, the local yeah. park, right? Which, you know, these park runs are transforming communities and people's, yeah. people's lives in so many ways. And what I'm trying to do with my kids is help them start to pay attention to what happens when they do certain things. For example, oh, I feel tired and sluggish. I don't want to go. Oh, now that we've gone, how do you feel now? Rather than, you know, daddy telling him, yeah. it's like, oh yeah, I've got more energy now. Even though I didn't want to come, I've yeah, got more yeah. energy. And I, I've also asked him recently to say, just pay attention now to what time we eat the night before and how you're doing and how your time is on a Saturday morning. Yeah, and yeah. I think he's already started to draw the comparison. And when we stick to the early meals on a Friday evening, my sleep's better and I'm running better on a Saturday yeah, compared yeah. to, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm... I'm taking your science and I'm trying to actually, instead of teach it to my son, I'm trying to just help him start to pay attention to, oh, do you know what I mean? No, actually this is, uh, you're doing the right thing because um, this is a time, particularly teenage time. That's when the, the kids, uh, after, they, after they get into late middle school and high school, um, this is when all of our circadian disruption happens. Right. Um, because that's when they get a lot of homework, they have to stay up late into the night, and when they stay up late into the night, they think, and often they are also told that your brain cannot function unless you have a late night snack. And <laughs> they get used to that late night snack and staying up late in the night, and in the morning they are sleep deprived and uh, they have to rush to the school. And I don't know what is the school start time here, but in the US, for example, um, most of the school start time used to be 7.30 in the morning before the pandemic started. So um, in collaboration with Horacio D. Iglesia, who is a professor at, um, in Seattle, um, he did a very simple study. Uh, what he did was he was looking at sleep. And we know that many teenagers, starting from middle school to high school and college, they are sleep deprived. And uh, that's also the time when their, their circadian clock tells them to wake up a little later than um, adults and also uh, toddlers. So 
um, the experiment was to delay the school start time by an hour um, and to track the students bef uh, before and after uh, the school start time was delayed. So we tracked nearly 200 students in two different schools, um, their sleep habit, their activity, and their academic performance. And when school start time was delayed by an hour, these kids got 35 minutes uh, more sleep, extra sleep. And when they got that 35 minutes extra sleep, then many parents would think that now kids are sleeping more, so they're not doing their homework, and <laughs> that yeah. 35 minutes is coming from their homework time, so their grades might go down. But actually what we found was their grades improved by 4%. And a 4% grade improvement is, is can be pretty big for people who are struggling, or those who are getting B grade, they can go to A grade. So this is an example where small change, uh, starting from middle school or high school, can have a huge impact, not only on their health, but also on their academic performance. And if we go back to now, actually in the pandemic, uh, quite a few things happened. One was uh, the kids were, uh, at least in the US, many kids were always on Zoom yeah. and they lost track of that regularity in their life. Uh, they didn't have access to a lot of bright light. Uh, there was social isolation. And, um, and they were also watching a lot of TV and eating late into the night. Um, so now, uh, this has become, and also since there was online education a lot, the time at which people had to resubmit their homework also uh, inadvertently now has become midnight. So in high school and colleges, at least in the US, the deadline for submitting your homework is midnight. So that means th it's now institutionalized that students should stay awake until midnight to finish their homework and submit it. And this is... Um, so well, this is circadian chaos. This is circadian chaos, which is now institutionalized, um, uh, at least in the US, uh, for well, all high school and, and colleges. But, so this is something that I've got to be honest, I find incredibly frustrating, um, particularly with schools, but it applies to adults as well which is also what happened over the last two or three years, is that schools that weren't really using technology that much with their kids, now everyone's yeah. on technology. And even though a lot of schools now, well, in the UK are completely back to normal, the screens have stayed, Yeah. right? So they're now in and they're not going back. Yeah. And a lot of the homework that's now being given is on screens, whereas three years ago, it wasn't been. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of schools realize the disruption. Like, I speak in a lot of schools. I get asked to speak about stress and resilience and what people can do. Um, why are so many kids now depressed and anxious? And I'm thinking the problem is, is fundamental. Well, A, there's too much pressure on kids at an early age. That's a slightly separate issue in my view. Yeah. Um, but the way they're being asked to work now is fundamentally going to mean that most of them are going to become sleep deprived. Yeah. Even if they're not sleep deprived technically in terms of the amount of hours, most of them will have been looking at screens probably in the last hour before bed. Yeah. So therefore, even if they are falling asleep, they're not going to get the same depth 
and quality of sleep. Can you maybe speak to that? Because a lot of adults are actually doing that as well. You know, yeah. 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't do that after dinner. You, you know, most of you couldn't really work. Now we can get back on the emails and keep going till late. Yeah. So we mentioned food, we're mentioning light as big drivers of our, our body's circadian rhythm. You know, we, you mentioned light in the morning, how important that is for your yeah. brain's clock. What's going on with light in the evening and what can we do to kind of mitigate that, both for children but also adults? Yeah, so light uh, is extremely important when it comes to brain clock. And in the morning, you got to resynchronize a brain clock to day-night cycle and it reduces depression, brings alertness. And uh, for the last 200,000 years, um, humans never saw too much bright light after sunset. Um, the light, uh, the firelight or the candlelight um, is very dim and it also doesn't have too much blue light. Yeah. So we are designed to see only dim light or orange color light in the evening. And even if you go back to the history of light in the UK in 1850, between 1850 and uh, 1900, um, the cost for lighting up an average size UK home for two to three hours every evening uh, was substantially high. Uh, it used to consume almost uh, a week's worth of income. Wow. So people actually didn't, light was expensive. So only in the last several, <laughs> last 50 years or so, uh, the cost of lighting, um, I'm not talking about your entire gas bill and all these bills, just lighting uh, is less than 1% and actually less than 0.5% of an average household's income. Wow. So we have uh, plenty of light. And in fact, now we all want bright light. So um, light pollution in our house <laughs> has become a big deal. Second is uh, the screen time. We are essentially looking at rectangular pieces of glowing objects until <laughs> from the time we wake up <laughs> until we go to fall asleep. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, what, what a what a time to be alive, eh? <laughs> of course, there are many benefits. I'm just you know having a yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah, And uh, you know, we are also talking now. We are thinking about metaverse, where <laughs> the light will be actually attached to our head. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at rectangular pieces is not enough. We have to actually attach it. So uh, this is kind of the silent epidemic um, that has begun, and I think from circadian point of view, we are at the same point as uh, what used to be the, what I call the lead and asbestos moment. So this is a time when we realize, when you're beginning to realize what is the widespread health impact or disruption of circadian rhythm disruption by having exposure to too much light, ambient light and also screen time and reducing sleep or reducing sleep quality and eating at the wrong time. All of these three are converging. But just like smoking suggestion or lead and asbestos took almost a generation to correct, I guess we are at the very beginning of that correction phase. And it will take us almost a generation. But at least few things that we can begin to implement in every family, and you're doing pretty good, uh, awesome setting an example for your kids is to come up with uh, simple rules that uh, two to three hours before bedtime, there should not be any bright light exposure. So at home, for example, 
now is a good time to put almost all, all your lights in dimmer so that you can dim the light, not flip, switch it on or off. And then use indirect light. So that means light that doesn't illuminate your face, but actually the workspace. Yeah. Um, table lamps, for example, in the old days. Um, so those kind of lights. And also for all of your devices, uh, make sure that your all your devices are set to the minimum brightness. Mm -hmm. Because if that is your default um, setting, then during daytime, of course, most of the devices will crank up their brightness to uh, compensate for the ambient light. But at nighttime, at least they will go back to the minimum brightness. So you mean that, that so go into your computer or your phone Forms. and change the setting so that it automatically starts low? Yeah, yeah. Or are there settings you're talking about where it, it changes according to the ambient light? Yeah, so uh, most of the devices now will change according to ambient light. But they will always come back to, uh, in the dark, they will come back to your default setting. So make your default setting default really low. Really low. Yeah. And then almost all rectangular pieces of glowing objects also have night shift feature. And this is really gratifying for me personally, because 20 years ago, uh, in 2002, December, actually, we published this paper showing, uh, demonstrating that this blue light receptor called melanopsin is important for resetting our clock and, and also important for uh, sleep regulation, alertness and depression, all that stuff. And Seeing that being translated to billions of devices is very gratifying. But so now you can go back to all your devices and set the night shift or night light, whatever feature it is. So that means it will actually change the color composition of the of your screen to from white balance to a little bit orange in color. So even if you are working at night on your computer, yeah. your job requires you to, even if your kids have to do homework yeah. at that time, their school requires them to, you're saying that by doing this, we can mitigate the effect that that's going to have on our sleep quality and our, and our, and our sort of circadian rhythm. Yeah. So at least, uh, you know, just like for waking up, we have an alarm clock. For going to bed, these are the nudges that will come in automatically that um, our screen will become a little darker and change its color. So at least for me personally, I feel like, okay, so it's time to wind down yeah. and prepare for bed well, and you for know, kids. It, yeah. it, it must be really gratifying for you because I guess one of the reasons, I guess from having spoken to you before, to become a scientist was to really help create change in the world. And how phenomenal that you've been involved with research 20 years ago with the discovery that you and other labs made about melanopsin. Yeah. And now you're seeing this widespread Adoption into devices, it must be incredible to see work in the lab now being translated to real life, which is incredible. I want to really acknowledge you for that because it's it's no small feat to be able to do that. And that, that has a massive impact on people's lives. On that, you previously said, I know there's science on this, that blind people, even though they're not, well, blind people can still detect when there is bright outside lights. Yeah. What's going on there? That was the mystery for a very long time, that um, majority of blind people, they cannot read the newspaper, they cannot find their ways, but they can actually sense when they're next to a window or when they're outdoor or indoor, so they can sense that brightness of light. And even blind mice, mice that have genetic mutations that make them blind, they could not um, navigate 
um, through a maze, uh, but they, they could actually sense light. In the sense, if you change the light-dark cycle, then their circadian clock would track the new light-dark cycle. And blind people also, when they travel, uh, most of them cannot readjust the new light-dark cycle. So how, how are they doing that? So, so th that was the mystery, and that's what we solved, that there is this melanopsin, and the reason why it is called melanopsin is this is an opsin. These are light-sensing proteins in, uh, typically called opsins. And this opsin was initially found in the melanosome or the pigment-producing cells in the frog's skin. Uh, so this was discovered in 1998 or uh, around that time. So this is a clear example that basic research into how a frog adopts its skin, skin darkness in response to daylight or sunlight led to the discovery of this melanopsin present in frog. And then when the human genome was sequenced, then we also found the same gene to be present in humans. And subsequently other groups, uh, other scientists actually showed that this particular melanopsin gene is turned on in very few cells in the retina. And these cells actually survive um, the genetic blindness that affect a lot of blind people and blind mice. So that set the stage for us. You know, science is always a communal activity and it all always builds on previous research. So mm -hmm. I won't say that I take full credit for it, but the, the, set, the stage was set to ask this very simple question, is melanopsin present in very few cells in human retina or in mouse retina responsible for the light perception that was already documented for almost 75 years uh, that happens in blind people and blind mice. So that's what we discovered in 2002 that yes, this melanopsin is the light sensing protein that resets our clock and that's present in very few cells. So for example, in a human retina, we have 14 million rod and cone cells that give, give us the uh, outside view whereas melanopsin is present in maximum 5,000 uh, cells. Wow. And another uh, interesting fact is um, since 2002, people have been studying this melanopsin in mouse retina or rat retina. And based on that, we have devised all this night shift feature, brightness setting, all this stuff. But only two to three years ago, for the first time, we could actually measure what these melanopsin cells look like or how they sense light in human retina for the first time, only three years ago. So this is also another example how the honest taxpayer's money that goes to <laughs> research actually helps um, make discoveries in weird animals like frog yeah. skin or yeah. mouse in a laboratory. And that can have a huge impact on how we live. Long before even, way before when we uh, can do those experiments in human retina. So melanopsin is just present in retinal cells, so not in, in the skin. Retina. No, not in the skin. So people who are blind, yeah. although they can't see, you know, that, yeah. that's a, um, I guess that's an oversimplification, but that they're, bas they're basically still- Can sense light. Can sense the light and set their body's circadian rhythm. That's, that's really powerful, isn't it? It's yeah. really, really powerful. Yeah. Um, just to close off then the evenings, right? Yeah. Because 
there's, there's a really nice symmetry where you want at the start of the day, one hour without eating, get some light, get some movement if you can. Those mm-hmm. things are great. At the end of the day, you're saying two to three hours before bed, not to eat. So you almost kind of start and the end are quite similar in some ways, but yeah. very different in other ways in terms of, an, you know, instead of bright lights in the morning, you now want dim lights in the evening. Yeah. Um, candlelight, firelight, if you are on your screens, change that. One thing we've also done at home, which has made a massive difference, I have these low blue light bulbs now yeah. in all the bedside lamps. Yeah. It's, and you can feel it, and actually once we ran out recently and we changed it to a normal, yeah. like low wattage bulb, I couldn't believe how bright it was. Yeah. I thought, wow, for years this was what it was. Yeah. Uh, it makes such a difference yeah. and you feel you feel more relaxed. So I think, again, that's a very simple thing that people can do that will make a difference. Going back to eating windows. Yeah. Okay, so we've said a 10 hours yeah. appears to be a pretty good universal recommendation that most people tend to find works around social life, work life, and what they're able to do. Now, there's a huge trend these days in the kind of low-carb or um, keto community to skip breakfast uh, and maybe go even more aggressive, like eight hours. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, first meal at 12, finish eating by 8 p.m. Or I know some will go even later. They use coffee to get them through in the, in the morning yeah. and they don't feel hungry at all. So often it'll be 2 or 3 p.m. they start, but they'll eat quite late till, let's say, 10 p.m. So... They've actually got a compressed eating window, but it's towards the end of the day. Yeah. So I just want to get into some of the subtleties here. Compared to what most people are doing, which is eating across 15 hours, right? We want to reduce that. Great. Let's say 12 hour minimum. You're showing a lot of benefits if people can get to 10 hours. Okay, fantastic. Are there increased benefits for some people when they go even lower to, let's say, an eight-hour eating window or a six-hour eating window? I guess that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, what do you think about, yes, we have to personalize it to our life, but if we have an eating window that's, my understanding of the science is that eating windows that tend to be earlier in the day tend to be more in harmony with our circadian biology. But I have also seen people get benefits yeah. even though they're doing it late into the evening. So can you maybe put some of that together for us? Yeah, so um, compressing eating window to a narrow interval is almost like exercise. Any exercise at any time of the day is always better than no exercise. Okay. So similarly, compressing eating window to eight hours if you can do or six hours and uh, eating healthy nutrition within that eating window is also pretty, uh, very important and we have to stick to that. Because sometimes what we have seen through our public facing app, My Circadian Clock, or the research is some people tend to compress that eating window too short, maybe four hours or six hours. At the same time, they they try to improve their nutrition quality so they're eating only salad or uh, they reduce their calories and they may be eating less protein or less uh, fat and particularly for women, uh, that can, and they're also more active. So that can trigger something what we call relative energy deficit in sports. So many athletes, uh, particularly women athletes, they report this, that um, most athletes who do triathlon or marathon runners, uh, women, they become amenoric. They don't cycle anymore. 
and they feel that it's so widespread that it's normal, which is not true. So that shows that um, by reducing calorie or eating within a very short time, and at the same time not paying attention to nutrition quality can put you into this state where your neuroendocrine system can malfunction. But if you're doing well with nutrition quality, then we haven't seen any study and that compare this very short eating window with uh, longer eating window. So what we have seen is for people who are obese, diabetic, or pre-diabetic, overweight, if you put them on six hours or four hours eating window, then they have a lot of adverse event. Um, so for example, they can feel dizzy, they can feel extremely low energy, and sometimes even nausea, those kind of stuff can happen. But those who are adapting to it, they have to pay attention to nutrition quality. We cannot look at longevity or overall health comprehensively in humans, but there was a study that just got published a couple of weeks ago in Science Magazine. It's not even in full print, it's only in online. Um, and I think that's, that relates to this question. So this is a very simple calorie restriction study in mice. We know that when you reduce calorie in mice by 20 to 40%, then these mice typically live longer than those who eat normal food and within uh, reasonable um, nutrition quality. But the question, uh, so, but there was a caveat to all the calorie restriction studies done in mice. That is uh, not clearly mentioned in many of the studies. That is, in calorie restriction studies, usually the mice that are put on calorie restriction, they're given 20 to 40% less calorie, but only one meal. And mice usually finish that meal within three to four hours. And in many cases, they can finish it in, within two hours. So that means they're eating within two hours to two to four hours and fasting for 20 to 22 hours wow. every single day. Whereas the ad libitum, the control group, has access to healthy nutrition throughout 24 hours. So now the question was whether the life extension effect of caloric restriction is due to calorie restriction or due to long fasting. Mm. Or, or how do we disentangle these two? Uh, so this is a study that's very well thought out and well planned. It also needed some technological advances where uh, food can be delivered to mice at any specific time and in specific quantities. So they had the control group that had access to food anytime. And then the caloric restriction group was divided into multiple groups. One group got only calorie restriction and no fasting. So that means the reduced calorie food was even split into very tiny pellets, and these mice got those tiny pellets in every two hours. So they're in a long eating window. So yeah, so in every two hours they're eating something, they're not actually fasting much. Yeah. They're just reducing calorie, but no fasting. Um, so compared to the control, this group increased their lifespan by 10%, which is pretty good. I mean, 10% lifespan extension in mice is very good. So now, the same calorie restricted, restricted diet was given within 12 hours. And when it was given within 12 hours, so that means same number of meals, 
but compressed into 12 hours. So in every third, every 60 minutes or so, uh, these mice were getting a little bit of food, but they were going through 12 hours of fasting. And all these mice that ate within 12 hours, they got another 10% lifespan extension. On top of the other 10%. On the top of 10%. So now they're living 20% longer by combining caloric restriction and some time restriction. Yeah. So now, even they went one step further, they met that 12 hours fasting during daytime when mice are supposed to fast because mice are nocturnal or nighttime. So that means these mice were eating during daytime when they're not supposed to eat and they're fasting during night. So the mice that fasted during nighttime, so that is eating at the wrong time, calorie So those are the ones that extended lifespan by 20%. But the mice that ate at nighttime and fasted during the daytime, they actually live 35% longer. Wow. Okay, so now they went one step further. They said, okay, so what if we give all the food within two hours versus 12 hours? And the increase in lifespan was negligible. It was less than 1%. Right. Okay, so whether it was 35% versus 36% or 25% versus 26%. So the bottom line is, at least in mice, reducing the um, eating interval to two hours or three hours did not give too much benefit mm. in terms of lifespan. And they went to see the cause of death because at the end, anyways, the mice were dying. The cause of death was not different among any of these groups. They all died of the same causes, which was mostly uh, different types of cancer in this particular mm. set of mice. So at least the mouse experiment has given us one answer that whether you are reducing calorie or eating whatever you're eating, any duration of fasting is better than no fasting. Yeah. But if you want to optimize, there is better to eat within your active period. For humans, it will be finishing your dinner by 6 or 7 p.m. And that will give you the best benefit. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that uh, in the pursuit of perfection, we should not forget <laughs> that we, what is practical and yeah. what suits your life. You should try to do that. Yeah, I mean, thank you. That is so beautifully explained because there's a real practicality there. Yeah. You know, there's optimum. Yeah. You know, for the biohackers who, who want to optimize everything, great. It's good to know that. Yeah. But for a lot of people who just want yeah. to lose a bit of weight, more energy, yeah. better gut function. Yeah, live longer, sure, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, look, increasing the amount of time where your body is not consuming foods, yeah. for most of us is probably going to be a good thing and have multiple benefits. Yeah. Because the truth is, you know, some people will say they've gone to one meal a day and they're thriving. Yeah. And I don't think you would say to them, don't do that, or would no. you? My only advice will be, Make sure that you have a balanced diet. Yeah. Because if you are eating only that one meal and you are not mixing the right proportion of micronutrients and micronutrients, then... Yeah. And it, again, it depends yeah. what your starting point is. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Are you someone who's carrying a lot of excess weight, has yeah. got a lot of problems, and then maybe you're thriving on this? Yeah. And I think there is a nuance there that we have to figure out. And 
You know, one of the criticisms I think that would be leveled at this entire movement is that, well, a lot of the studies, and I guess this was more relevant a few years ago, a lot of the studies are done in mice. Yeah. What's the relevance to humans? As someone who's literally at the forefront of this research, what do you say to those people? No, I guess even in the beginning, when I used to give scientific talks, people used to tell me the same thing. Maybe it relates to mice. And in fact, um, for the first few years, I was never funded. Uh, I didn't get any federal funding because the reviewers of my grant um, made that comment that, uh, you know, this may relate to mice. And we know that humans don't eat like mice, so it may not have any mm. significance. So that actually forced me to go back and ask when people eat. And this was a very simple question that had never been asked objectively. So we made this up, My Circadian Clock, and where people had to just take pictures of their food, didn't have to enter what they ate, didn't have to uh, type in anything. And that was the first generation of that app. And that's when we figured out, we found that nearly 50% of adults in the US uh, who are not even shift workers, they were eating for 14 hours, 45 minutes. We rounded it up to 15 hours and say that 50% of adults eat for 15 hours or longer. That's when many human studies started. And the question was, can people who are already eating at 15 or 16 hours change their behavior and try to eat within 10 hours? Because I can come up with a discovery that eating um, X, Y, Z, for example, maybe avocado with uh, tomato every single day is good for everybody, but people may not change their behavior. So that was a big question. Can people change behavior? Mm -hmm. And what we found was, yes, it was possible. People could change behavior and there are some positive feedback loops. So for mm -hmm. example, the gut health, the sense of energy and sleep, we think those three actually drive people to sustain this behavior. And then there are a lot of um, small studies, and these are this is the way translation works. Yeah, exactly. You go from mice, and then you do a small feasibility study to see whether it's feasible. In the humans. In humans. And these are typically small because you don't want to put too many people at risk by doing something that can even cause harm. Um, so that first phase went through. Um, there are different types of studies, and also it was gratifying to see Studies were done in US, Europe, Asia, Australia, in all these continents, small group, um, male and female, younger and older, people with obesity or diabetes or metabolic syndrome. And universally in most of these studies, we saw benefit. Hmm. And these studies are also important because they define what benefit we are going to see and what is the magnitude so that when you design large randomized control study, then you can um, power them appropriately. Yeah. So now we are going through that phase where the large randomized control studies are being done and also the results are coming out. Um, but there is one thing that we have to keep in mind that in any nutrition intervention study, if we are going to change something, then we should be able to monitor whether people are making that change. And when you're doing small studies, it's easier because uh, you have a handful of people, maybe uh, 20 or 30 people, and you can monitor when they're eating. And you can also teach them how to comply with the, with the intervention. But when you go to a large study, that's the challenge. Can you actually monitor when people are eating? Yeah. 
And if you cannot monitor, then it becomes very difficult to interpret the results. The second thing is, we know that people with obesity, diabetes, and all this metabolic disease, they have adopted a lifestyle or habit that suits them and they're used to eating over a long period of time. Mm. So they need extra support. They're not the, they're not the bleeding as biohackers who are ready to do anything and can take a little bit of discomfort and pain. Um, so you need some uh, support, education, yeah. and you have to do that in last trial. And that can become difficult. So that's why we have to, we have to keep those in mind now. Yeah. Uh, those eating pattern monitored objectively and whether they were given the right type of support to adapt to this time restricting or intermittent fasting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love in your um, your latest book, The Circadian Diabetes Code, is there's a step-by-step -step plan and you yes. go through common problems people have, whether it's headaches or compliance or energy and how they can deal with that, which I think is really, really helpful. And, you know, although the title of the book is The Circadian Diabetes Code, as I read it, it's like, well, this book will help you whether you have diabetes or not. It's a good recipe for how to live your life. Yeah. Um, and something I'm passionate about as a medical doctor, and I wonder about your view on this, given that you're a scientist. Science has always interested me, but I've never felt enslaved by the science. Science, I've always used as a way of guiding me rather than telling me exactly what I should do with my patients. So my real life experience of time restricted eating, probably since 2015, 2014 is probably mm -hmm. the sort of time when I started to implement it based on your really- Mouse work. Mouse work, yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah. Uh, as a doctor, it's like, okay, well, let's be intelligent about this. What is the likelihood of harm here by asking one of my patients to uh, only eat within 12 hours or 11 hours or 10 hours? It doesn't appear to be like much risk of harm here, particularly if they're not on any medications yeah, or anything, yeah, right? Yeah. So I think, okay, very, very low risk of harm, high potential for huge benefits. Okay, yeah. I'm okay with that sort of risk-benefit ratio. Yeah. And I would, you know, counsel people. And I saw, like your researchers now show, like the human studies are starting to show, but I have seen with hundreds, maybe thousands of patients that when people compress their eating windows, and I, I agree, 10 hours I think is a very sustainable and achievable window for most people, you see benefits across the board. Yeah. Weight loss, blood sugar, energy, sleep quality, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. Oh man, this is a big one for me. Yeah. Like, their gut function just starts to normalize. All the IBS stuff out there tends to be about, oh, this diet or avoid these foods or these foods. I get it. But for me, the two big things in IBS that I deal with before anything else are stress yeah. and eating windows. Because I find you, if you go for those upstream levers, there are lots of downstream benefits. So I'm, I'm a passionate advocate of your work and I've been using it with real life people, including in my BBC One show in 2015, yeah. I used time yeah. restricted eating with a family, huge benefits. Yeah. And they all did it together as well, which was really lovely. So I just wanted to share that because I know yeah. Sometimes people go, mice, be human. I think the human studies are coming, but that's my real life experience. Yeah. Um, but I guess uh, going back to your comment about diabetes score, the reason why uh, I wrote about diabetes is almost everybody knows someone 
uh, either a close friend or a family relative um, yeah. or even within the same family or maybe the same person who may be pre-diabetic or uh, has type 2 diabetes. It's true. And we don't take it seriously because it's not like a heart attack or heart failure and other stuff. But we know that diabetes is the entryway to heart disease. Um, living with diabetes is almost like living with um, having experienced at least one heart attack. Yeah. Um, so that's why. Uh, and also now the stats is nearly half of the adults in the U.S. are either pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic. Yeah. And just like you said, we have barriers to good lifestyle. Um, and one of the barriers can be being around with family members who want to have late night dinner or eating anytime. So, so that's why the book is actually for everybody because yeah. if you don't have diabetes, at least you are caring for somebody who has diabetes. Yeah. And then the best gift that you can do right now is to help that other person to live a healthy lifestyle by paying attention to circadian rhythm, um, eating, yeah. compressing eating window, paying attention to sleep, and then a little bit of yeah. uh, attention to exercise and light. Yeah, and, ju and just to clarify, when we say diabetes, of course, we're talking about type two diabetes type two as diabetes. opposed to type one. Yeah. Just to finish off, uh, Sachin, there's three areas I wonder if we could just briefly touch on, shift work, naps, and jet lag. Um, <laughs> One of the things that struck me yesterday when I text you, and I know you've only within the last couple of days landed from America, which of course is, you know, you're on the West Coast. So there's an eight hour time difference between what your body clock is used to and what we're on in the UK. And of course, we've been trying to juggle the time of this <laughs> conversation, right? And I remember texting you yesterday saying, are you sure 8 a.m. is not too early for you? Because I'm aware that that's yeah. like midnight for your body clock. Yeah. Um, won't you be jet lagged? And you said something like, no, I'm not suffering from jet lag. I was like, okay, that's interesting because I'm <laughs> someone who has very much struggled. So why are you not suffering from jet lag? And what are, in your view, what are the key things that we can do to reduce the likelihood that we're gonna be floored by it? Yeah, so jet lag is when your brain clock is still thinking you are in the old time zone and your body clock is also thinking in a different time zone. So essentially your clocks are desynchronized from whatever time zone you are in. And as we have learned that light resets our brain clock and food resets our rest of the body clock, then we can use that to reset ourselves to the new time zone. So that means uh, when I travel US to Europe, most of the flights leave US in the evening or late afternoon and reach Europe in the morning. So that means that should be the usual fasting time for everybody. So no food in flight. So you don't eat on the flights? Yeah, no food in flight. And if it is a short flight, like this was a short flight for me because it was maximum eight hours flying. Uh, so that means even I had to finish my dinner or last meal before even boarding the plane. And then in flight, you should not get too much light exposure. So that means the only thing that you should be doing in flight is trying to sleep. So I not only try to sleep, I actually carry an eye mask or sleeping mask so that really cut out all the light exposure. Um, mm. So no watching television and 
um, not even very little or minimal reading, uh, only books or something with uh, light falling on a book and trying to sleep. And then after I reached here again, the flight reaches at 6.45 or 7 in the morning. By the time you check into the hotel, it's uh, 8.30 or 9. So your breakfast um, is around 10 o'clock in the morning. So I already had a long fasting followed by this very nice big breakfast that reset up my body clock and so food can do that it can yeah. just compl- it can help literally reset your body reset clock body clock and then of course uh, i had a, a long drive from the airport to the hotel and um, as i said even if you're just looking outside it was a it was a rainy day in london but still that much light is enough to keep me awake and reset so so basically you're paying attention to light and foods yeah to help you when you come this way. And I guess when you go back from the UK to the US, the flight will probably be in the daytime, the morning yeah, or lunchtime yeah. from here. Yeah. So I've done that many times in the yeah. past, uh, not for the last two or three years having said that, but it's almost the opposite. Well, would you eat on the plane this time when you go back? Yeah, so this time I eat my meal in plan, but then when I land, since I'm landing in the evening, I actually don't need that evening meal. So I can go to the next morning Got it. and that would give me that long fast followed by the breakfast yeah. next morning. Well, whatever you're doing is working because two <laughs> days into your trip, having no jet lag and doing an early conversation with me where you're sounding completely on your game, <laughs> uh, I think just speaks to the power of what you're doing. That's jet lag. Can we just briefly, because we said at the start, there's optimum, but the reality is many people, they go, yeah, that sounds great, but I'm a shift worker or I have to work late into the evening. Are there any tips I can use? And I know in your books you've written about many tips for shift workers, which is super helpful. Can you just give us a sort of brief overview on the sorts of things that shift workers can do to help them? Yeah, so unfortunately shift work comes in many different flavors, different types of shift, and then how they change the shift. We have specifically worked on one type of shift work that's 24-hour shifts that uh, firefighters do in the US. I don't know about 24-hour shift in UK. And in our study, which um, hopefully will come out this year, what we found is firefighters who do 24-hour shift, they could adapt to 10 hours time restricting. And we asked them to self-select that 10 hours. And what we found is most of the firefighters, they selected a daytime time restricting window that ended um, somewhere between 7 and 9 p.m. So they could all eat during daytime. This is when they were on for 24 hours. 24 hours. Okay. But they, they still had enough energy to go through the overnight wow. calls. And this was risky for the fire department and also for us because we thought, well, if they cannot do their job, this is a civic duty, this is civic safety. It's not only for their own safety. If they cannot respond to a fire, mm. if they cannot respond to an accident, then that's actually too much risk for us. And we're pleasantly surprised that they could actually do that. And um, during that time, we also found out that they felt that by not eating during their shift, they felt more light and full of energy when they responded to the call. Wow! And when they came back from the call, they could actually go back to sleep much quicker. And on their off days, they could maintain that sleep and they could get the recovery Mm. sleep much better. So that was surprising. So now going back to 
other shifts, 12-hour shifts or 8-hour shifts. Of course, this is challenging because if they're changing their shift too frequently, then um, it will become a challenge. But we have also seen other shift workers where the shift changes once every two months or three months. And typically what they do is they try to align their eating with their shift um, so that uh, when they're not on the shift work, they can have enough sleep and fasting combined um, so that they can benefit. So if you're, let's say you're a nurse or a doctor on a night shift um, and you're doing, let's say, an 8 p.m. till 8 a.m. or something like that, you might try and encourage them to eat during that time window, even though it's the night. Yeah, so uh, there is a caveat. When they're doing uh, this 12 hours uh, shift at night uh, and doctors and nurses, they usually have, I don't know in the UK, but in the US, Nurses typically have four days a week. Hmm. They don't actually work all seven days, four or five. They get their hours in, in a particular, yeah. yeah. And because they're doing 12 hours, four days, they're getting 48 hours um, almost. So in those cases, um, this is again, uh, what I call anecdata because we haven't done clinical trials, but what we have seen is what nurses can adapt to, what they can do is they try to have a eating window that starts from say noon or two o'clock and then goes till 10 o'clock at night. Um, so in that way, they can maintain that same eating window on their on days and off days. Yeah, I get it. So that's really, yeah. it's really clever, isn't it? So yeah. you're not switching too much. Yeah, so they keep that same eating window and it's again personal so they can find their own sweet spot. But at the same time, when they come off the shift in the morning, if they're driving, then they still need that black coffee or black tea to make sure that they are safe, mm. <laughs> they're driving safe. And it can interfere with their sleep, so that's something that they have to work on um, to see whether they yeah. can just have a warm, decaffeinated tea or something just to get them home. Or if they're taking public transport, actually the good thing in the UK is people can take public transport that don't need to be caffeinated, yeah. and they can get home and get that restorative sleep. Yeah. yeah, that's super helpful. Uh, just finally then, naps. Yeah. Um, in looking at circadian biology and how important a robust circadian biology is for you know everything yeah. we've spoken about, you know, weight, type yeah. of diabetes, inflammation, but also mood, you yeah. know, depression, these sort of things. Absolutely really important to have a good circadian rhythm. Um, in your view, can naps help us if we need them? Yeah, actually, if we go back to human his, the history of humans on this planet, and we are not fully diurnal. We are what we call we are crepuscular. So that means we are more active in the morning and evening, and we are designed to be uh, to take a nap after lunch. Yeah. Uh, so um, early afternoon, right after noon. Um, so. So that's when, if you think about it, although we have access to now air conditioning and cooling, but our ancestors didn't have that access. So it used to be very hard to go outside, mm. outdoor. And for most of the human history, only in the last 35,000 years, uh, humans moved away from the equator to go north or south. But equator, that area used to be pretty hard. So we are designed to take the nap, yeah. early afternoon nap. So. So it's it's already imprinted in our genome to take hey, a nap. That, I, I, you know, for me, I'm a fan of naps. Yeah. I appreciate you know 
for, for many of our jobs, we're unable to, but certainly at weekends. Yeah. Man, I love a nap. Yeah. You know, I will get up early, but I also like a, a, yeah. an, an early afternoon post-lunch nap. And yeah. I guess culturally, I grew up with seeing my dad doing it, you know, and so it's kind of, or when we'd go to India every other summer, I'd see my family take naps after lunch. Yeah. So I kind of, it's ingrained in me. Um, and if it's early enough, and I, I, I've been recommending naps, I know there's a lot of controversy around naps. I personally find that as long as the nap isn't taken too late, yeah. where it can impact the evening, yeah. I think they can be incredibly helpful. And there's a ton of science now on what it does for yeah, concentration, yeah. focus, learning, creativity, yeah. those kind of things. So you're, you're pro-naps, basically. Yeah. I mean, we're designed for naps. So. Yeah. And of course... <laughs> but as I you said, we should not take it uh, too late. Uh, like, yeah. like no napping after, say, 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. Um, Sachin, I've, I've just so enjoyed chatting with you. Um, you know, you, you're involved with science and you have been for many years now that is changing the fabric of how many people live their lives. You know, yes, I've also preferred the term time-restricted eating, but it is commonly adopted <laughs> yeah. as intermittent fasting, right? Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. I've always found intermittent fasting confusing as a term. I thought, what, do, what does it mean? Whereas time-restricted eating for me made, it was very clear. It's like, you know, you restrict your eating window, you eat within this period of time. But the truth is, you and now many other scientists also, of course, are are, are helping. But you, you and your lab has been really a big player in putting this on the map, a, a way of living and eating that many people around the world are trying. I want to acknowledge you for that. Thank um, you. I always find you very humble with your research in terms of what you've done. Um, but but I think it is really, really impactful. And, you know, I could sit here for another two hours and chat to you about so many <laughs> other things. But... You know, we've got, to, we've got to call that a close at some point. Yeah. Um, the books are brilliant. I think the books could help a load of people. This podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of life. Just at the end here now, for people who feel inspired by what you said, who think, yeah, you know what? I think, I think I want to give this a try. Do you have any final kind of top tips to share with people, to leave them with, yeah. so they can take your work and use it to improve the quality of their lives? Yeah, so there are six tips. <laughs> okay, love it. Okay, so number one, uh, go to bed at consistent time and try to be in bed for eight hours so that you can get seven hours of sleep. And then number two, in the morning, um, wait for at least an hour after waking up because that's the changing of the guards. The night hormones are going down, the day hormones are coming up, and your body is not ready to digest and uh, assimilate nutrient. Uh, the number three is to have, again, consistent time for breakfast and then eat for the next eight, nine, 10, or maximum 12 hours, not beyond that. Then uh, number four is try to be outdoor for at least 30 minutes under daylight, even if it's a cloudy day, because light synchronizes our brain clock. It's an antidepressant reduces sleepiness, improve our executive function. Any time of the day or specifically the morning? If you can do in the morning, that's better. If you can do any other time of the day, then that's also good. Okay. Um, so then number five is exercise, physical activity. If you're compressed for time, then afternoon physical activity is much better than any other time of the day because that's when your muscles are ready, your 
flexibility is better and so your risk for injury is low and afternoon exercise is much better in reducing blood glucose than morning exercise of same time and duration. And then number six is two to three hours before bedtime. It's again changing of the guards. The day hormones are going down and the night hormones are coming up. So for two to three hours before bedtime, no food and no bright light. So those are the six. Super simple. You've explained all the science. Uh, it's just been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you so much. And um, maybe in a, a few years again, we can revisit this to see where we're up to date with the research. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rangan. Have a perfect circadian day. I will do. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do have a think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. Now, before you go, just want to let you know about Friday 5. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. I share exclusive insights in this email that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. If that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday5. And if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, including happiness, nutrition, movement, stress, sleep, behavior change, weight loss, and so much more. Do take a moment to check them out. They're all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. And if you enjoyed today's episode, it's always appreciated. If you can take a moment to share this podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember... You are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. <laughs>